Kimberly Wirtz with Balmore Slow, and I'm an attorney. Thank you for joining the program today. A few reasons to have you on the program, so thank you very much. One is a little update from the IOGCC, which is uh, Interstate Oil Gas Commerce Commission, Commission Commerce Conference. I don't know. There's too many C's. I get kind of mixed up. That's why you're on here to help me out. And then we'll talk a little bit about some water issues. Compact Commission. Thank you very much. See, sometimes even, you know, us hosts, we get a little bit overwhelmed with all the acronyms out there. And what was the one I saw today? Uh, What was it? FOMO? FOGO? Uh, It's basically millennials. They don't want to miss anything. Fear of missing out. FOMO. Fear of missing out. And, I learned a new one. Yeah, they're they're blaming their lack of retirement and um, you know paying off bills and getting deeper in debt because they just don't want to miss anything. And I and I was thinking, I remember that too, but that was more like when my parents were having conversations with their friends. I'd be at the edge of the stairwell listening because I didn't want to miss out on anything, or I'd be the last one awake at a sleepover because I didn't want to miss out on anything. I guess I never thought about you know yeah. going to Fiji. You know, I should have done that. <laughs> no, I was more concerned as why are my friends all at a different um, lunch table and what are they talking about without me? I'm missing yeah, out. Right, and so, so the, the, the fear of missing out has evolved, and that's what I'm getting at, I yeah. guess. So, <laughs> uh, Maybe we should transition into water right now for that, and we'll get to, yeah. we'll, we'll get back to the uh, IOGCC OGCC in just a minute, but uh, water really has evolved, and I had Jeff Simon on with the – Western Dakota Energy Association, and he actually said one of the pieces of legislation came out of the recent session in North Dakota up in the Bakken as kind of a sleeper issue. Nobody saw it coming. Uh, I remember a couple years ago, oh, the Permian came out with a study, and I think they need like seven or 10 times or 20 times more water, and the Bakken had a similar study to that. Shale plays are finding out they need a lot more water than before. Farm owners now are finding out a way to profit by selling their water yeah. rights to oil companies. So water is water, water everywhere. Let's all have a drink and sell it, I guess. So it's, it's the new it's the new frack sand. You know, it was just a few years ago we were all scrambling on how we could get our hands on just that right, you know, mixture of frack sand and today it's now what can we do with all this water that we don't have? <laughs> so what type of things are you seeing from an attorney standpoint, from a legal standpoint? I mean, we've had Josh Swanson on with Vogel Law Firm up in North Dakota talking about how he sees a lot of work with like uh, saltwater disposal units and, and permits and that sort of thing. So you never know how an attorney gets involved in the oil and gas industry. So I absolutely love having attorneys on because a lot of times they're on the ground floor of things. You know, they're the ones that get the motion going. Yes, and saltwater disposal is a huge issue in Oklahoma that we deal with. Um, we also deal with it, you know, because of our recent seismic activity. But that's one area that we're on that we're, you know, as attorneys, we're on the ground for. We have to respond to protests and different permits and different regulation filings. Um, here in Oklahoma, it's the same situation, I think, for attorneys in Texas and New Mexico right now who are also dealing with, you know, disposal and seismic activity. So I think that's a, a really big, hot, hot issue right now. Um, are you seeing a lot of the seismic activity? You know, there's the, the, the industry is a little bit leery of talking about it because it's it's. It's scary. No, nobody really knows what yeah. to think of it. You know, I mean, nobody knows how to what, what to do quite yet, or if it's even as obvious as the blame should be. And you know what I mean by that, where there it's it's almost 
people are afraid to stick their foot in their mouth. Right, and and that's that's fair. Um, in Oklahoma, yes, we have kind of a proven track record here. You can actually go to earthquakes.ok.gov, and they've done a full study on you know you can pull up an earthquake map and see all of the different um, earthquakes that have hit different regions. And then you can also see how Oklahoma as a state has responded and what they've done. And they've been able to really identify some trigger issues and with different regulations and different other um, mechanisms in place, we have seen our seismic activity drop dramatically just in the past year or so. So we went, I was trying to see if I could pull up the map to give you an idea of the numbers we were looking at. Um, let's look at the earthquakes in 2014. Uh, looks like, you know, the map just blows up. It's probably maybe over 100. Um, and then when you do it for just like the past seven days, there's none. And then if you look at 2019 on the map, there's maybe four. And so when you look at the difference in from when we didn't have the regulations to today, when we do have these regulations in place, it's, it's a drastic decrease. Now, what's recently occurred that we're kind of keeping an eye on, we've kind of been known for our seismic activity and, and possible links to um, the disposal or other, you know, some people think frack, some people don't. It just really depends on who you talk to. But what we've been keeping an eye on is the Delaware. The Delaware has recently started, you know, there's rumors on the ground that we've had, you know, earthquakes are getting triggered down there. And again, a lot of people are pointing to the disposal. I think the difference there is that with the formations, it's hard to pinpoint and say, we know for sure that this activity caused this seismic activity. You know, we know for sure that disposing here in this formation caused these, this area of the ground to shake. It's very hard to prove that. And then the formations in Oklahoma may not be the exact same as the formations in the Delaware. So it's kind of hard to draw a, a hard line comparison, but it's kind of also hard to ignore it. I see where the seismic activity is going to be much like the fracking fluids, where it's 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 got to be sp specialized to each shale play. You know, I mean, I think of right. I think of like somebody like Dr. Lauren Scott just trying to explain the difference between say like the Bakken and the Tuscaloosa, where it's a lot more, a lot more muddy down there. You know, and there's a lot more. It's a lot harder to frack, and so they have to come up with a completely different chemistry set in order to do that. And I see the geology of the rock being like that too where you could have some uh -huh. geology just responding different to to some of those disposals and just shifting some certain plates and everything like that i could totally see that and it's kind of kind of kind of unique how it's happening in that one area really right well two with the delaware now but it's still you know you're talking about yeah, the, you're talking about the delaware shale play not the state right you're talking about delaware shale play right right yeah. sorry yes the delaware basin Sorry. No, that's okay. Um, I, 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 everyone <laughs> listening was, you know, everyone listening knew that. But we also have radio stations that carry this. So a lot of times some people are driving along and they might not understand it's the basin. So we try to be a little bit, you know, explain it yeah. a little bit for the average folk out there. I like to be treated like I'm five so people can talk down to me. That way everybody gotcha. understands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and, I I, and then I get to act that way too. <laughs> so it's always fun. <laughs> So talk to me a little bit about some of the other water things that are happening down there. So you've got the seismic activity, you've got the disposal uh, wells, that sort of thing. 
How about some other, with the water rights, are you coming across any water rights issues or your colleagues or your law firm, whether it be, like I say, the farmers turning around and selling it, or maybe they're, they're needed in some new aquifers that are, you know, miles below the earth or something like that? Yeah, well, we have, we've actually seen several, um, kind of, as you mentioned earlier, surface owners sort of abandoning their surface operations and instead selling their water resource to, you know, either oil and gas operators or even to, um, like a third party water company, um, when I've talked to several, you know, clients on the ground, it's it may it's when you put the dollars in place, it makes sense. They're killing themselves trying to irrigate crops in so let's look at the Permian Basin where, you know, and the Delaware is as well, the Delaware Basin as well. You're right in the big fat middle of like the Chihuahuan Desert down there. So irrigating for crops or, you know, pulling up the water resource for even livestock can be tedious. When you could instead turn around and just sell this water resource to an operator who's going to then come in and do all the hard work, they're going to come put in the well, and they're going to pump the water, and they're going to truck it off, and you just can kind of sit back and collect a check. So five years ago, I would have said this would have never been profitable. We would have not, you know, encouraged this. We would have encouraged everyone, hold on to your water supply. You never know when you're going to get it back. Today, water is in such a high demand in that area that the client is capable of making, you know, a profit from their water resource more over than what they're making on their surface operations. So that's been an interesting thing to kind of develop and to work with the transactions. You know, you can work with either selling the water, leasing the water, um, and then, you you know, down there in the Permian where you have so many owners that still their surface is still attached to their mineral state. In other words, they've never sold off the minerals and they've kept it all. For them, they say, well, I I think I should also be making money whenever you produce my water, when you're producing my oil. So it's become a very competitive market for the resource above and beyond what the the oil and gas resources has created. Has there been any government encroachment on that? resource. The reason I ask is it's happened in North Dakota. We've had uh, independent, there's an, actually an independent water commission that was created because uh, the uh, state created a kind of a uh, regional munis- municipality. It's it's one of those quasi-government slash for the best interest private type thing. Um, right. And it's a water company. And there's a lot of good. Yeah. There's a lot of good behind it because it brings water to a lot of places. But at the same time, right. it's been taking out businesses left and right of these farmers that have been selling uh, water to the to the energy companies. And so, and it's gotten really cutthroat to where like the the state is getting like exclusive contracts with Continental Resources and things like that. So it's just totally cutting out these independent guys. Is that happening? Right. Yeah, and it's a Hatfield-McCoy situation out there, and so it's, like, really difficult because you've got lobbyists and political parties and money and, I mean, it, you know, engineering firms, and so people are really afraid to even take sides on that and, and stick up for whoever and that sort of thing. Is any of that happening down in the Permian, Oklahoma area, that sort of thing? Because it's, it's really, I mean, you don't have to do a very hard Google search to find articles on what I just t- talked about. So um, I, I'm not like, you know, I'm not disclosing a big giant secret here. It's just one of those things in North Dakota that people just don't talk about. 
because it's right. it, it'll it'll make too many sides angry. It's sensitive. Well, right. it is. I mean, when when an engineering firm creates the project out of you know, it's it's something that people knew they needed, but there was only one engineering firm who created the project, only one firm that bid on the project. I think they said it would take like 50 or 70 million. It's over 700 million now with no end in sight. And the engineering firm right. is still making their commission. <laughs> so that's why people yeah. were upset. But the engineering firm was also a very big supporter of the dominant party in, in, in the state. And so that's why nobody would ever say anything. Um, Right. Yeah, I, and so that that's me basically saying uh, politics does dictate some economies. And has that encroachment happened down in Texas or Oklahoma, or is that you know something that you can't even comment on because it's too it's too heated too? So it sounds like it's it's well, pre- do, it sounds I, like it's pretty I, new I do down there. I, well, I do think it's pretty heated. I do think it kind of depends on which state you're standing in. Okay. Um, from a, from a Texas point, it's been very limited involvement. They've tried to encourage through regulations and different um, laws. They, they're trying to encourage through tax incentives, recycling and reuse and things of that nature. But you don't really see a big push, kind of like what you're, you're saying has happened in North Dakota. It's, it's still very privately um, managed for the most part in Texas. There, you know, the, you do have some instances where water conservation districts can can pop up in Texas, and and those can can kind of carve away at some of of what you can do with the water supply. But for the most part, just looking at the state overall, I would say it's, you know, everybody jokes Texas is the wild wild west. It's kind of still the wild wild west there when it comes to the private rights of the water resource. Yeah. Now, if you jump over into New Mexico you'll see a completely different structure. Um, They have signed a memorandum of understanding with the EPA, the state of New Mexico has, in hopes to recycle, I believe, I think they want to recycle 90% of their produced water. So they want to drastically reduce statewide the amount of fresh water that they're using in the oil and gas industry. And instead, let's just reuse and recycle instead of constantly pulling from our fresh water supplies. In that state goal, that required, I, I don't know if it required, but they reached out to the EPA and said, help us study our water and help us come up with a way we can do this statewide. I think if you look at those two states, their legal structures, you understand a little bit more why it is that way. New Mexico holds water as a public right. In other words, the water is meant to benefit the whole, that being the whole state, all of the people, all of the citizens, the public. In Texas, water is held still as a private right. It generally stays attached to the land. And so I think if you kind of keep those in the back of your mind, it makes sense why Texas would still be trying to privately regulate their own water use while New Mexico is looking at a from a, a broader statewide, how can we get government help type of, of lenses. And then you take Oklahoma and you step off into it. And it's very strange. It's kind of a, a mix of the two. They tend to, you know, we have the Corporation Commission, we have the Oklahoma Water Resource Board, different entities that are here to kind of guide the process along. But in a way, Oklahoma tends to sit back and kind of watch Texas and New Mexico and say, okay, what are they doing and what are they doing and how can we do what we need to do for our state? 
So I think when the, the overall big picture, when I talk about, you know, let's get up into the forest view here instead of dropping down into the tree level, from a forest view, I think all three states are responding appropriately based on what their legal structure is, what their regulations call for, and what their citizens are accustomed to, what the culture of the state is used to. So I don't think, you know, I get asked a lot, you know, is, is Oklahoma managing water correctly? Is Texas doing it right? Is New Mexico figured it all out? Well, I say yes to all of those because I think from an individual state point of view, they are all doing what's necessary to try to protect their water supply in their own ways. And that's a good answer, too. I, th- I think a lot of people have to realize that when it comes, especially with oil and gas, state to state and even county to county is still the tried basin and true. Basin to basin, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's still, even, I mean, yeah, basin to basin and county to county. And uh, I'm sure there's even sub-basin to sub-basin. It's, just, it's tried and true because there is no magic bullet. There is no magic lasso that, that can kind of blanket the whole thing. It's just, it's too difficult because of all the different geology and physics and math and, and, and human beings and everything else. Yeah, and even on, a, you know, even on a human level, I think it's important to remember that, you know, the, the rancher that's plopped in the middle of the Delaware Basin may have a completely different perspective as to his water rights from someone that is, say, sitting in the middle of the scoop in the stack. Absolutely. You know, um, here in Oklahoma. So I was, I when I talked to the IOGCC, you know, I said it's, it's you have to remember when we're getting inches upon inches of rain every week here in Oklahoma it can kind of skew your perspective you have to remember that some of these basins they don't see that inch of water for the whole year so they have a completely different um driving force when it comes to how they they're looking at their water well and until they can layer in the agriculture and the drain tile and the number of different things that can fall into play when it comes to water management and, and and that sort of thing it's it's really hard to have that conversation and blame or point the finger and you know what i mean because there's so much more right. that goes into water i mean and and that's without even bringing any municipalities into this because right. you know well you were what was it two years ago i think it was that um it kind of came out that California has the water rights to Lake Havasu over Arizona and Nevada. And I remember thinking, going, that is so funny that we've gotten to a point in our, in our, in our lifetime where they actually had to do that exercise. They actually had to ha- get a group of people together and say, we're getting so close to where we might run out of water. Which state gets it first? <laughs> yep. Well, and, you know, that's the, there's a giant Supreme Court case right now, Texas versus New Mexico, and it's a case about who has the rights to the water of the Rio Grande. And, you know, it's flowing down from Colorado to New Mexico, and then New Mexico delivers to Texas, and then, you know, you want to really complicate it all. We have an international um, obligation to deliver, the, the United States needs to deliver water from the Rio Grande to Mexico. So there's about four layers of who gets this water, and there's just not a whole lot of water there. <laughs> you know, so that, I've been keeping an eye on that one. That will be very interesting to see how it finally ever comes out. Kimberly Wirtz is our guest. Ball Morse Lowe is the law firm she's an attorney for. We're talking about some of the water issues happening in the oil and gas industry. And I wanted to ask you one more question, and then we'll transition into your presentation at uh, the IOGCC conference that happened in Oklahoma City recently. Uh, you mentioned the 
kind of the, well, I mentioned Lake Havasu, you mentioned the Rio Grande, and essentially that, that's the war drums beating over, over water. You know, we, we've heard about water wars. There's been a movie by Kevin Costner. I think Mel Gibson did a movie based on, on you know, the fight for water and petroleum and things like that, Mad Max. And um, yeah, so, so this isn't a new concept. So when I hear these things happening, those are, those are war drums. Just like, you know, when, when the Bakken, Dapple, Dakota Access Pipeline protest happened, those were war drums. And I, and I said that back then. I said, people need to be careful here because the environmental movement has gotten so extreme that we are now having a, a square off. And then the Colorado state, state of Colorado, passes this new piece of legislation that is kind of a... a a soft ban on a percentage of oil and gas drilling in the state, which impacts it quite remarkably. And then the governor, after he signed it, he said, and this is the first time I've heard this, the war on oil and gas. So with the water wars that have been kind of the drums have been beating with Lake Havasu and the Rio Grande and some of the aquifers and a few other things that are happening across the U.S., because it is shale related. A lot of it is very much shale related. And when the environmentalists have risen to the point to where we've mentioned this on our program, you have two legitimate presidential candidates in Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Now, this is not a political statement. This is they are legitimate candidates within the Democratic Party. And they have said in their platform they want to ban oil and gas drilling, which is a very extreme comment Uh, to me. It's the same as trying to legislate dragons because it's it's just not a possible. It's just not a real thing. It's it's just trying to right. say things for effect. I call it crazy, but I'm trying to be polite and I'm trying to be professional. But at the same time, every year when the news networks put out the 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 um, debate of all the fringe candidates and you got the guy with the Merlin hat that made it on the ballot because he went through the democratic process and got enough signatures god bless him and he's out there because he loves game of thrones and he's talking about we got to legislate dragons banning oil and gas is in the exact same category in my mind okay that to me is more war drums that you're now just putting out blind ideology which in a war you want people to follow What's your opinion on where we're at with this? Because I just gave you a heck of a lot of examples to back up my concern for this ideology war that we have right now against fossil fuels. Right. Um, Excuse me. I am a, I call myself a Texoman. So I was born and raised in Texas, and I'm now finishing, you know, growing up uh, here in Oklahoma. And so I have been embedded in the oil and gas industry probably since the day I I came into this beautiful world. Um, It's just natural for me to um, be involved. I think I am a realist. While I can sympathize and I can take perspective and understand what the concerns are, I also understand that this is not a realistic answer. Um... When people talk about banning oil and gas, I think they sometimes they think it's just it's just the gas that runs your car. When in fact, what I tell a lot of people is go to the grocery store, go to the uh, medicine aisle, and the next time you get mosquito bites or you get a bug bite of some time, and, and, and you want to get that cream that stops all the itch and stuff, that cream is made from petroleum 
and that petroleum comes from your oil and gas. And that oil and gas is not just the car that is running down the road. So many people, I think, get caught up in the idea that this oil and gas, is, it's fossil fuels, so they start thinking fuels. Well, it, that's not what the industry does per se. That is a huge part of it, but they do so much more. And I also have to sit back and think about the economies that are impacted. Um, growing up in the Permian area, Permian Basin area, I would be scared to think what would happen to that entire part of the map if oil and gas was not a part of their livelihood. It is the backbone of those economies. And so that also, it's another reason why I say I'm a realist. What are you going to do with those jobs? What are you going to do for those people that have spent their lives in this industry so that you could have that bug cream at the store? <laughs> Very articulate answer. appreciate that. That's, that's um, refreshing to hear that perspective on it because the the approach i'm trying to take well actually i'm I'm taking a very ridiculous approach because i i think we're in ridiculous times where right i i honestly i do i i think i think the um environmental movement has gotten too extreme to where we're not even talking about plastic straws and bags anymore we're going right, right. to let's ban it that's extreme yeah. so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, and, and we've actually got a, a kind of a fun thing we're going to do this summer. We've ordered a belt from the same company that makes the WWE and UFC Brock Lesnar belt. And, <laughs> and it's called the Earth's Champion. And we live in such a unique time right now that the environmentalists are actually just sitting around drinking Keurig coffee cups, texting and trolling on their iPhones. And the iPhones take about 28 rare earth minerals. And the last time I checked, lithium mining is not one of the greatest things for the planet. So a lot of these environmentalists, have they didn't follow Ed Bagley Jr.'s method of driving around in a garbage-powered car because the guy does it. Ed Bagley Jr., God bless him, he, lives, he, he, he walks the walk, and he's invited on our program any day of the week. A lot of the other environmentalists, they don't practice that at all. Well, look at the presidential candidates, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, for example, how do you think they're getting around to all these new places with their jet fuel? My goodness, you want to ban drilling and you're going around jet setting from place to place? Come on, let's 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 be realistic here. So, what we're doing is we're 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 going to explain how the oil and gas industry is actually the leader right now in saving the planet, and it's a little Stephen Colbert like, but at the same time, you almost need that to tell the truth because. The oil and gas industry has made monumental investments towards clean energy. Look at look at what they've done towards even solar and wind. They've invested in well, competition against themselves just to make... That's kind of what I was going to say. I think it's very easy to make those comments, but then to turn a blind eye to the, the BPs and some of the bigger ones that have really taken a big chunk of their capital and said, okay... We understand that this is an issue. They are realists to me. We are going to keep producing oil and gas, but we're also going to start dabbling in some of these other areas to better understand how they can all work together. I'm not here to say that wind and solar is bad. I'm not here to say that oil and gas is bad. I'm here to say that we are a, a human race that consumes naturally. So why not work to, all together to consume on a safer, more efficient level? But well, also I, I, be realistic that it's not going to completely happen overnight either. You know, Apache, 
um, was down in the Delaware, and they were, you know, again, this is the Delaware Basin, it's the Chihuahuan Desert, and they are sucking up water left and right to, to drill thousands of wells. Apache took it upon themselves to fork over a very large dollar amount to replace that water in that community and to work with the community on how to put it back as one. So I think we get a we get a bad rep, reputation, I guess. People think, well, well, we're just, you know, sucking up the ground and not doing anything to help. And I don't think that's a fair statement either. I don't think that's a realistic statement either. No, and, and I think the, real, the, the reality is that if the easy answer is going to be to demonize and pick on the oil and gas industry, I don't think they have any idea what's going to happen because it is, first of all, it's the last industry that actually embraces the essence of capitalism. And if capitalism goes away, small town America goes away tomorrow. It just does. And the oil and gas industry not only pays their fair share in taxes, they pay their fair shares of fees. They pay their fair shares in local and county sales taxes and state taxes. And then on top of all of that, being probably the most taxed industry by every state that there's an oil and gas industry in, they also have enough money left over so that the local ball team can have softball uniforms and the local church can have their bake sale. And when the school needs a new community center, generally there's a company or two to drop a million dollars to help them get their seed money. That's the type of stuff that really irritates me when it goes unreported it it just it just right. like people don't, they forget about it and it's really sad it's it is it is truly sad because we've gotten to a point to where the media has allowed bernie sanders and elizabeth warren to say like i said that is the same as dragon legislation so the fact that they're just allowing it because it's bernie sanders and elizabeth warren is really dangerous by the media standpoint because they should be challenging them and saying whoa that's crazy so are you now a fringe candidate because you were legitimate so you're talking about bringing us to the walking dead days without zombies in four days five days because it's going to be utter chaos if we i'm not even talking about the the stopping of the making of plastics or gasoline i'm referring to what you talked about earlier it would just jar the economy in ways that we couldn't even fathom. I mean, it would just boom. People, people's paychecks would stop. That's the part that I just yeah. can't can't get over. That's the thing. I, I, I that's the part I think I think about the most is you know those dads and even those moms. It's very common now to have women really barely into the oil and gas industry, and I think about them losing their jobs, and that's that's all they've ever done their whole lives. And I don't know how we help those employees transition. What I've had a lot of fun watching over the last decade, I've been involved with the oil and gas industry now for about a decade. And it's been the rise of the empowerment of women in the industry. That's what I've actually enjoyed watching because this has been a male-dominated industry for a long time. And to see the women, I'm talking as truck drivers, I'm talking as you know, being on the wells, but also in the executive offices too. So it's it's they've been really trickling in into places of position and power very very nicely. I would say even ahead of other industries too. That's that's what I think has been great. The way the industry's embraced the female perspective to the industry. I don't know if that even makes yes. sense, but no, um, it does. It does. So uh, anyway, just there's a there's a little environment talk here, and that'll lead into what you talked about at the interstate. Uh, oil and gas is it co- commission conference compact, compact commission. commission thank you we'll get it before the night though well you, you'll you'll get it i, I won't it's a mouthful it's 
Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission. So what you talked about, the IOGCC. and what you talked about was the groundwater concerns between uh, the mixing of oil and, and and water. You know, that's that's age old oil and water don't mix. Right. So uh, yeah. g- g- give me an overview of what you talked about at the conference and what people should know. Well, I was asked to speak um, kind of giving an overview of the different regulations that we've seen go into place and how for the, for the longest time, you know, water's been a part of the surface state and oil's been a part of the mineral state. But in today's production climate, it's completely apparent to everyone that you can't have really one without the other. So the mineral state needs the water and the water kind of comes with the minerals. It's just they go hand in hand. And so when we were looking at, you know, the different regulations in place, kind of like I was speaking to you about that forest level and tree level, you know, from a forest level, we can all sit back and say, yes, Texas has these externalities that are driving water uh, management and water use. And we can say the same about uh, New Mexico and Oklahoma. But when you dive down into that basin level, that tree level, you start to really pick apart a little bit closer of the issues that are driving the different basins. And so then if you try to apply regulations to those different areas, it can become very tricky. And so what is right for New Mexico on one side of the Rio Grande might not work for Texas on the other side of the Rio Grande. So a lot of the regulations that we've seen, like I said, for New Mexico have been statewide kind of um, overhaul, trying to see how they can over, over, um, I guess, oversee or, I don't know, maybe manage is the right word, their entire state's water supply. Um, Texas is not that way. They've had various little regulations come out, you know, wanting to encourage recycling or reuse, but so much of the water there is privately owned by landowners that that can become you know, a a touchy subject. And then Oklahoma has also had recent, you know, regulations come forward with their disposal with the UIC and things like that, that it just becomes very apparent that when we're talking about water and we're talking about how we can regulate use and management, it's just not a simple answer. And it's going to change depending on kind of, as you said, county to county, where we're at, boots on the ground. Are we standing in the Delaware? This is what the Delaware needs. Are we standing in the scoop and the stack? Well, this is what the scoop and the stack needs. And so it was basically just an overview for them of, of, you know, don't punish the states. Let's, you know, figure out how we can help these states because every state's trying to do what's best for that state. I think you can also, one of the big issues that we talked about was drawing correlations. You know, Oklahoma has been struggling with disposal, but even more than that, we we really struggle with transporting these volumes of water. I think that's something that we're kind of seeing in some of the, you know, eastern states that produce. They have struggled with how they move the water, getting in pipeline infrastructure. So you can kind of draw correlations there. You can look at New Mexico and say, well, they're kind of pushing towards more of a conservation level. Colorado, we can say, has done the same thing. You know, Texas and, and New Mexico both fight drought, and they both have concerns about irrigation, you know, drawing up the groundwater supply. That's the same issues that we see in the Midwest states. And so I think at the end of the day, when we were talking at the IOGCC, it was we all have issues. Every state here that's represented has an issue. Now let's sit down and figure out what's working, where it's working, how it's working, and how can we make that 
fit for us, our individual states. So it was a, a very interesting conversation, um, very interesting to hear, you know, that Oklahoma's not alone, Texas isn't alone, we're all kind of in this, in this struggle together, so let's come to the table and figure out how we can help each other. How about when we talk about recycled water, reusing water, or even waste water? A lot of people probably forget that some towns, aren't they? They're, they're, they're selling their wastewater to oil companies or using it or something like that. Didn't I read that somewhere? Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's common. Um, depending on the water, the wastewater, depending on what's been done to it, it can sometimes it, it's perfect to go on to another well site and be used again. So when we talk about recycling and reuse, I try to delineate those two. Recycling is it's a more intensive process. We're trying to get it back to a cleaner stage than, than where we began. With reuse, we're really talking about water that we used it for this well and we're going to reuse it for the next well and we're going to reuse it for the next well. So we don't really ever intend for reuse water to go back to, say, agricultural purposes or livestock purposes or even human consumption. Recycled water, we can sometimes, we can get it just right and we can get it back to that that stage of, of human consumption, livestock consumption again. So those are two different areas. And so I tend to put more wastewater in with reuse because it's it's gotten to the point where it's not going to be fit to go back into the world, but it can be treated and used over and over again for the well sites if you have the right systems in place. What type of infrastructure needs, do you know, are, are, there, are they set up for those types of things when it comes to recycling or reusing the water? It just depends on the area. Um, you know, the Eagleford area, the Eagleford Basin is probably set up the best because they have such a good permanent infrastructure already kind of in place. Parts of the Permian and the Delaware Basins don't have that. I mean, they're already struggling with pipelines to move the oil in and out. Yeah. How in the world are they going to also find pipelines to move the water in and out? Um, Oklahoma is a little bit a little bit better off than Texas. The funny thing, though, is you don't necessarily need full-blown permanent infrastructure to be able to recycle and reuse. They have, just like we have uh, mobile frack trucks that can just go from site to site, they now have water recycling trucks that you can lease out, rent out, whatnot, that will travel well site to well site and can do the recycling job right there on the spot. In Oklahoma, we have had a permanent recycler um, open, um, New Field Exploration forked over the capital and invested in a very large um, recycling permanent system. But even at that, that system is not going to be capable of, you can't run a permanent pipeline to every single wellhead once again. So you, you either recycle it on site and then truck it to the well, or you recycle it on site and then use temporary type, uh, temporary pipeline to get it to the wellhead. So there's various options depending on where you're at, you know, and then you can jump down into the Permian Basin where a landowner, the Faskin Oil and Ranch, they also forked over the capital. They built themselves their own permanent on-site water recycling system. And so on their land, if you drill a well, you use their water and you recycle their water. And it's an all-in-one shop. It's pretty great. <laughs> so it just kind of depends on where you're at, what your options are, and really what you want to invest in. That's why I love this industry. Smart, clever capitalists, they always seem to figure out a way to 
keep the marketplace and the economy moving. And um, yeah, so very yeah. fascinating. That, that's why we like to keep uh, some of the regulations and uh, some of the things like that abreasted because it does cost money. I'm sure that you've even got slides and formulas that show exactly how much regulation costs on each barrel and each frack site and that sort of thing. I'm, I mean, it's I've seen them in slides and everything else. So anyway, well, yeah. uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, you're good. I was just agreeing with you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, let's let's better wrap up here. I'm just checking out the time, and we want to make sure that we can get your information out to people. And if anybody has any, what states are you licensed in? I am licensed in Oklahoma. Our firm represents those in Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Texas. Um, we do a little bit of water consulting across all three, and we also have a firm in um, Colorado. If anybody needs assistance there, we have licensed attorneys in that state as well. Okay, so Colorado, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas would be the uh, states that you can assist in. Okay, great. And and just kind of who who is your customer that you're that you guys would be looking for? I, uh, obviously, we've talked a lot about water and oil and gas, but do you guys you know I, I mean are you guys a full on or just kind of talk to me a little bit about who some of your customers are that you guys are looking for? We have um, represented just about every side of it as you can right now. It's very hard to pick a side in water because so many of the clients, their their main focus is the water. It's not that we're having a fight among people. We're having more of a how can we work together to protect this resource. So we have worked, you know, with operators who are trying to dispose or um, need disposal help. We've worked with clients that are, you know, are landowners and need to know what their rights are with their water and how they can, you know, use it or not use it. So it's very um, open-ended for the most part, you know, and, and I just think it's a fascinating area right now because it's very new, um, kind of on the, you know, beginning level of really seeing practicing water attorneys. 